Welcome to Perspectives with Dr. Vadisha Patel. Do you sometimes feel alone in life with personal and interpersonal struggles and challenges? We'll show you that you are not alone and that you can learn and thrive from your challenges and thereby live a healthy life. Now, here is your host, Dr. Vadisha Patel. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Perspectives. I'm your host, Dr. Vidisha Patel, and back again with you this week for an hour's conversation. And today it's going to be about soulful leadership. Working as a licensed mental health therapist in Florida in the U.S., I come across many types of individuals that are trying to overcome challenges in their lives. And my work is based primarily in relationship, as you've probably heard me say before. And I find that so much of what I do requires being authentic, being based in integrity, and being empathic. So when I came across Dr. Chiara Micoli's book, The Soulful Leader, I initially thought it was relevant to the corporate world. All of us often make assumptions based on limited knowledge, and that's exactly what happened to me with this book. But Dr. Kara McCauley has written a highly relevant book for all of us. His system, which he calls AIE for Authenticity, Integrity, and Empathy, teaches skills that we can all use in our daily lives with our families, our co-workers, and pretty much anyone we engage with. Dr. Sierra McCauley is a licensed clinical psychologist who has been practicing for over 35 years in the Boston area. He's on faculty at Harvard Medical School, he's lectured for the American Cancer Society, and he works as Chief Psychologist and Director for Metro West Counseling Center, also in the Boston area. He's appeared on numerous television and radio shows and has authored several books, including several workbooks and some apps for treating anxiety and depression. The list goes on and on, but instead I am going to actually jump into a conversation so we can learn more directly from him. So, Dr. Kara McCauley, thank you so much for joining me today on Perspectives. Well, thank you for having me, Vidisha. I'm very glad to be here and looking forward to uh, having a a, a spirited, uh, engaging conversation. Sounds great. So, this is your latest book, The Soulful (laughs) Leader, the title is intriguing to me, and I'm curious what the inspiration was for you behind it. Well, the inspiration, uh, Vidisha, has really been my, my tremendous concern, what's happening politically in our culture and in the, in the corporate world as well, in families as well, because as parents, of course, we're leaders of families. Um, but I'm very concerned with um, the lack of character, the lack of integrity in the corporate world and the political world. And I think people really, Americans, and maybe many people throughout the world are really longing for soulful leaders, people who lead with uh, a very different perspective and put character integrity uh, as, as a primary emphasis in their work and uh, in their tendency to be of service to others rather than just the bottom line. That's not enough for a soulful leader. A soulful leader has a purpose uh, that goes beyond money, and they're not primarily motivated by status or image, but they they just have a natural interest in making the most of every human being they encounter. And soulful people lead with passion, and and they're intimately aware of the structure of their organizations. They're, They're interested in motivating from the bottom up, not from the top down, which is so common now. You know, they know who cleans their offices, who mows the lawn, who fixes their computers, and and no person is seen as less valuable than anyone else. 
It's interesting because I think that applies across the globe for everything. I think we've become, and I'd love your thoughts on this, I think we've become compartmentalized in what we do because we have so much more access to, say, technology. Um, we don't have to interact with people necessarily in an office space. Mm-hmm. We can work mm-hmm. from our the comfort of our home. Yeah. Uh, so do you think that has led to some of this the challenges that you see? I, th- I think, I think, I mean, you know, I love technology because it's made our work, you know, it, it makes doing research much, much easier. We can keep in touch with colleagues and family and there's so many advantages, but there's so many disadvantages because yes, I think it has depersonalized relationships. When I hear people talk about how many friends they have on Facebook and then I ask them how many of them have they ever met or talked to in person, uh, they say very few. And, uh, I mean, I was out to lunch the other day, and I was sitting next to a mother, father, and two young girls. And for the 40 minutes I was there by myself just to get a quick sandwich, they were on their phones the whole 40 minutes, all four of them. And I'm thinking wow. they're, they're interacting with people online, but they're, they're sitting right next to a family member, not even talking to them. So I think that has been a, a definitely a disadvantage. It, it really makes us disconnected from each other when we emphasize technology to provide relationship and when we think it actually is providing real connection. Right, exactly. And I, I think I see that in my therapeutic practice and I, I wonder how much you see that in yours as well because I personally think I know people who do therapy um, over the internet and there's obviously time and place for that as well. But I think for the most part, I prefer to have a direct connection with somebody because that's how I can best help them. Um, Do you see that happening in your practice as well? Yes. I mean, I I would agree with you and I feel the same way. I'd much rather meet with a person in person, but sometimes because people travel and, and, you know, I, I, prob- I had, and I'm sure as you probably do too, I mean, I have clients across the country and in some other countries, so they can't obviously get here. Is it the same as being in person? No, but at least with, with certain devices, you can see people, which helps a lot. What surprises right. me, though, is even with, with people that travel that I know who are, for instance, in from the Boston area where I am, and they may be traveling to California or to Chicago or whatever, they prefer to just use the audio. They don't even want to use the video. <laughs> and because they're just used to that. And I say, why can't we use the video? I'd like to see you. No, no, it's not necessary. And I, I have to emphasize that a little bit, that I, I think we're at a disadvantage when we're doing that. But it's, it surprises me how many people don't even want to use the video. They don't even want to be seen. They're not used to being seen. And is this just this? Is this also the older generation? Or do you think, because I feel like, the older generation is part of the transition, um, or do you see it mostly with with younger people? I, I see it with both, quite, quite frankly, and, and I, I definitely see it with people in the corporate world because I think they're so used to, so many people, as you said earlier, are working from home, and they right. don't see another human being a whole week. So it's just, it's just become part of their life. And when you go into restaurants now and you see people on their phones all the time, as I, as I did, as gave you the example before, yeah, it's become commonplace. One of my clients who's a CFO was telling me that he lost his temper in a meeting the other day, and he's not a person who's generally angry, but he, he said, I was there with 13 people on my team, 
and I'm sitting down, and seven of them are on a, on their phone while I'm talking. And he said, I I put my foot, I put my fist down on the desk, and I said, this this is it's it's over now. I don't want anyone bringing a phone into these meetings forever. He said, I'm wow. talking and you're typing. And he said, how can you possibly be listening? And I'm thinking, these are, these are executives, and they're on, seven out of 13 people are on their phone while, while the leader is talking. But it's become commonplace. It's become commonplace to be distracted. And soulful leaders are great listeners. That's one of the things that makes people want to be around them. They know how to listen empathically, and they know how to slow things down. They're not speeding ahead. They don't believe that speed necessarily equals high performance. They try to be more thoughtful, and they slow people's uh, the rate of their speech down so that they can actually understand them and understand the facts of what they're trying to communicate. That's great. You have some amazing quotes in your book, and one of them is from Sheryl Sandberg that says, leadership is about making others better as a result of your presence and yes. making sure that impact lasts in your absence. Um, and that's starting to speak to a little bit of what you're saying about this ability to listen. And um, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more about how this soulful leader evolves. Well, I, I think soulful leaders learn at some point, and we have so many credible studies now that indicate that when you establish an empathic environment, you're changing brain chemistry. You know, as you know, you're producing feel-good chemicals. And when you change brain chemistry, people are happy. And when people are happy, they're more creative, they're more productive, and profits go up. You know, one of the the corporate health awards that's given every year um, to companies that have more empathic environments, they they outperform the S&P 500 by 200 percentage points or more. And wow. one of the consulting groups in England that rates companies on whether their environments are empathic or not, the companies that are at the top 10 increase their value twice as much as the ones in the bottom 10. So I think leaders are seeing throughout the world that when you lead with empathy, when you listen and value the contributions of people around you, not just people at the top, but people in general, People want to do the same for others. You're, you become the model. And I think in terms of her, the quote that you, that you just cited, that means that it, it persists even when you're not there. Right. And, and I think that applies equally well. This, this modeling of that behavior, I think, applies equally well to families or to classrooms, um, pretty much anywhere um, that, yes. that, there, that we have somebody who's leading others. Um, but I guess this concept of listening, when I think of a stereotypic corporate leader, and I know this is a stereotype and huge generalization, but um, you often think of somebody who is um, very confident and possibly thinks a lot of themselves and their vision for whatever the company is. How do you teach somebody to become soulful can you teach them or is it just how that or is it just how that person is no i think that you definitely can teach people to be soulful you know vidisha i've had leadership and communication i have three groups that have been ongoing for over 30 years each one has different ages and most of these people are in leadership positions and often especially with men when they join 
because I get a lot of referrals from HR uh, departments, um, people will tell me, oh, he doesn't have the empathy gene or she doesn't have the empathy gene. But what happens after they're in those groups for over a year or so, they, they develop empathy. Everybody has empathy neurons, as you know. Everyone has the capacity for empathy. We're, it, it's part of our genetic endowment. It's part of what makes us altruistic and want to give to others. But it goes, when, it, when it's not practiced, and when it's not modeled, when you don't grow up in a family that models empathy, it's like a muscle that's unused. It atrophies. So then you have to tease out that potential that's lied dormant for a long time. When people are motivated, and oftentimes people are motivated in the corporate world, they usually come into these groups. People think they're going to come in because they want to improve their business acumen, but often it's because their personal relationships are failing, because they are poor listeners. They tend to have poor self-care. They know how to achieve, but they don't know how to love. They, they don't know how to sit and be present and really make contact with another human being and use empathy to see beyond the surface of another person. So can these skills be developed? Yes, because the potential lies within all of us. The potential for empathy and goodness is within every human being, I believe. But it has to be teased out and taught. It's something that has to be practiced. It's sort of like someone who's never exercised and they're overweight and unhealthy. Well, if they go to a gym for a, for a year and they and they work with a trainer, their whole physique and their and their brain chemistry changes. And and the same happens, I think, when people are in these groups or when people realize that expanding their empathic range is one of the greatest advantages you can have in your life, personally and professionally. It makes you a better parent. It makes you a better spouse. It makes you a better leader. It makes you a better friend. It makes you a better person, and it makes you a healthier person. Right, that makes that makes a lot of sense, and I think it's great that you've been able to have these groups. Um, I think retention of of people in the groups is that is that a problem? Um, is it challenging, or how it, does you know, that people, work? When people come in, I say you have to come at least a minimum of twelve times, Vidisha, and. I hardly ever have someone stop them. I mean, people stay for a long time, not because they have to, just because they're learning. And then they often send people they work with. So it's an ongoing process where people are becoming better and better about learning how to relate more effectively. One thing they really learn, and, it, and, it, and I think it makes a difference to people, is that they, they begin to realize that you can manage your brain chemistry. And when you know how to change your brain chemistry for the better, you know that you're a happier, more effective person, and it's contagious. It spreads to the people around you. You know, I wrote a book in the year 2000 called The Power of Empathy. And at that time, I always felt, and I'm sure you do in your practice and in your life, that when you give and receive empathy, something changes in you. Well, now we know through functional MRIs that when you give and receive empathy, you produce oxytocin, that near miracle neurotransmitter that women produce when they're pregnant. And what does oxytocin do? It reduces anxiety. It reduces the, the, the stress hormone cortisol. It helps us live longer, helps us recovery from illness. It promotes a sense of calm and well-being, increases generosity and empathy. It protects against heart disease. It, it lessens inflammation. Most importantly, it reduces craving for addictive substances. It creates a bonding and an increase in trust in others, and it decreases fear. It creates a feeling of security, and most importantly, it makes us open for love and connection. So when people realize that the way you relate, especially if you relate empathically and you listen empathically and it's reciprocal, 
you're changing your brain chemistry. Conversely, when you relate, as many leaders, and we know many leaders politically and in the corporate world, when you relate through anger and fear, when you lead by anger and fear, you produce the stress hormone cortisol. What does that do? When you produce cortisol in another person, you cause negative thinking. You cause weight gain, inflammation, hair loss. It breaks down muscle tissue, causes flabbiness, depression, anxiety, and actually kills neurons in the memory center of the brain. It throws off blood sugar levels, cortisol does, that enlarges fat cells, which makes us crave sugary sweet substances. So it's one of the unknown factors in weight gain. And we know we have a tremendous problem with obesity in our culture. So one way of relating which is very common, leading through aggression and fear, creates the stress response and many negative consequences with the chemical that it produces. The other way, relating with empathy, produces a different neurochemical that makes people happy, creative, trust, and makes them feel generous and want to be around you, and, and it creates creativity. So when people realize... I can regulate this in my own brain and pass it on to other people. Why wouldn't I want to do that in my family and in my business? Absolutely. I would like to go down this road a little bit further with you on empathy, um, but we are going to go to a short commercial break. So please stay tuned. We're talking about being a soulful leader and leading a soulful life, I think. If you have questions, you can email me, Dr. Vidisha Patel at drvforkids at yahoo.com. We will be right back. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Have you stopped to think seriously about hypnosis? Hypnosis can set you on your way to better health, can free you from anxiety, phobias, and so much more. Join host Inez Simpson for Hypnosis Everywhere, Inez Simpson and the Simpson Protocol. This show is for anyone from the experienced hypnotist practitioner to the merely curious. Inez Simpson offers tools and insights from the whole world of hypnosis with guests and open discussions. Hypnosis Everywhere, The Simpson Protocol, airs live every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time, on Voice America Health & Wellness. Do you feel that you aren't at your best when it comes to your personal health? Even if your doctor gives you a clean bill of health and says everything is in working order, perhaps you aren't feeling at the top of your game. Dr. Rebecca Risk overcame pain and fatigue despite all tests to the contrary. Learn how she put her health back on track and how you can too on Falling Through the Cracks. Live every Monday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, 12 noon Eastern Time on Voice America Health & Wellness. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. Plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at blog.voiceamerica.com. That's blog.voiceamerica.com. The Voice America Press Blog. All access, all the time. Step into a healthier you. Voice America Health & Wellness. You are tuned into Perspectives with Dr. Vadisha Patel. If you would like to reach the show today, please call into 1-866-472-5792. 
1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email directly to Dr. Patel at drv4kids at yahoo.com. That's Dr. V, the number four, kids at yahoo.com. Now, back to Perspectives. Welcome back to Perspectives. I'm your host, Dr. Vidisha Patel, and I'm here in conversation with Dr. Arthur Sierra McCauley, a licensed clinical psychologist and a specialist in the AIE leadership method, which he's developed and written about. So before the break, we were talking about empathy, and I'd like to go back to that, as I was telling you over the break. Um, it is so important, and when we can generate those empathic feelings, you talked about all the positive um, physical attributes that and the benefits mm-hmm. of being mm-hmm. empathic, and they they do build on themselves. So I think the more empathic we are, the more empathic we want to be, um, but vice versa with the the opposite as well. So how do we how do we just teach this and make sure that um, everybody learns how to do this and how learns how to be empathic? Mm-hmm. Well, f- first of all, I think when people realize, Vidisha, that empathy probably is the most important capacity we have when, if we want to be happy, and I think all human beings want to be happy. But I think oftentimes people confuse empathy with sympathy. You know, sympathy rushes into console based on identifying with another person, assuming rather than knowing. And empathy is, in fact, based on truly understanding the unique experiences of another, not based on one's history, but the unique situation or experience of the other person. An example would be, for instance, I have a woman who moved here from California not long ago, and her dad passed away, and she came to see me. She was grieving, and she was very, very close to her father. So she didn't know the neighbors in the neighborhood very well because he's not been here very long. But she heard that one of the neighbors' father died down the street. And she put together a a bunch of flowers and some food, and she ordered some food, and she walked down to the neighbor's home, and she rang the doorbell. And when the woman answered, she said, Oh, my God, uh, you don't know me very well. I know we just met to say hi once, and... But I heard your dad passed, and my dad passed, and I'm, abso- I'm still devastated a year later. I know you must be devastated. And she said, you know, I-, I thank you very much for being so gracious. But my father left our family when I was two years old. I don't even know what he looks like. So uh. Uh, unfortunately, I'm not devastated, um, but I appreciate it, and I'm sorry for what happened to you with your dad. I wish I had known mine. You see, she rushed, she rushed in. That's empathy. I mean, that's sympathy. Empathy slows down the process to find out the facts. It's very objective. So it, it doesn't, you don't rush in and assuming because you had a certain situation with your son. And, and I say, oh, I know how all, all adolescents are. My son's the same way. And it, no, every human being is unique. Empathy wants to know the facts. So in this case, the fathers of these two women were entirely different. One had right. no involvement and the other had close involvement. And how did that how did that progress afterwards? Was there well, any I think my, my client came, my client was learning the difference between sympathy and empathy, and learning to not rush in. Empathy is not a, a, is not a quality that quick reactors have. Quick reactors re, react a lot based on identification or where their sensitivities are. 
I have a client who, one of my clients in one of these groups is a professor, and he mentioned he was very frustrated with the long day of teaching it. And even though he's a very patient person generally, he said, oh, my God, this woman, one of my students just keeps asking these stupid questions. And one of the women said, I can't believe you called her stupid. And she, got, she was reacting very quickly. You see, he, right. didn't call, he didn't call the student stupid, but she's so sensitive to the word because she had been called stupid as a young person. Even though today she's highly educated and so forth, that's, that's a trigger for her. And when you have these triggers, you react quickly without empathy. That's why we need to know ourselves well. We need to come to understand what our biases, what our prejudices, not only about other people, but about ourselves, so that we can perceive accurately. When we, empathy teaches us to slow down and perceive the facts. This professor was just saying, I'm frustrated with a long day because this person asks stupid questions. He would never call her stupid. He was just venting in front of colleagues, in, in essence. But my other client took it very personally. Very, It hurt her because it reminded her of the past. That's not empathy. That's relating through her old, old conditioning and biases. And in order to have empathy, we keep working on figuring out what are the biases we have toward ourselves and others so that we can continue to see clearly, and that's what empathy does. When you're in empathic relationships with other people, you come to learn who you are today, not who you thought you were yesterday growing up as a child. You know, I always say that we write a novel about ourselves early in life. We take right. in information from other people, and we, we don't know who we are when we're four, six, eight, ten. We look to the significant others in our lives, and whatever, whatever we think they feel about us, we think that's who we are. People grow up thinking they're not intelligent, they're not attractive, they're not athletic, their singing voice is not good. And then later in life, our job is to find out what the truth is. That's where empathy comes in. Because when you're in empathic relationships with others, you get feedback. You find out, were those ideas that you wrote in that novel about yourself accurate, or are they inaccurate? I think every adult's job is to rewrite the book and make it a nonfiction book. We have to edit the book we wrote about ourselves. Right. Find well, out who, who we are, you, so that you, we can see clearly. So you're actually you've brought up several points that um, I think are interesting. One, actually, I will disagree with you slightly because I feel that children actually know deep inside who they are, but what often happens is they look to others for approval. So when others give them the impression that what they think they are is not what they are. Um, then they start to question, and then that's where the doubt comes. Yeah. Um, Well, that's a very important point, I think, because, yes, maybe some children, I would agree with you, know within their heart who they are, and they know what they like or don't like, but... Over time, if you, if like, like what you're saying, if you're longing for the love of your parents or your teachers or your coaches, um, it, 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 over, it overshadows it, and you kind of right. lose what you believe in yourself. And that's what I see when I see clients in my practice often is those individuals who deep down years ago knew who they were and what yes. they longed for and and it's now under multiple layers because they've had these others who they've looked to for validation yes. Um, yes. and so but in this empathic relationship the other point that I'm hearing as you're saying this is that it's important to step back and it's important 
for both people or everyone in the relationship to step back and to listen because how do you have the space to actually assess what your bias is or what your trigger is if you don't allow yourself that space to stop and listen? Yes, yes, yes. And soulful leaders know how to do that. You know, they're, they're the voice of reason in conflict because they don't react quickly. They're rather thoughtful contributors. They know how to listen. They know how to gen- because they're generally interested in understanding. And, and they're interested in understanding not only people who like them, but also those who on, on the surface seem different. You know, and they're known for finding common ground. They, they, they like to take in information from diverse sources. And in fact, they have a great appreciation for diversity. You know, from, we know from very credible studies in the business world that diverse groups are the most productive groups. Why is it? Because if you take 10, 50-year-old white men trying to strategize about how to bring a product to market or whether it's even a valuable market or a desirable one, a desirable product, you know, it's kind of like preaching to the choir. You may come up with some creative ideas, but when you take a, a, a diverse group, when you take, you know, two people from one country and two people from another and two women and two men and maybe some different age groups and you mix it in, you're seeing all the variables in the world. You see the world in a larger scope. You have a large lens camera rather than seeing just a section of the world. So soulful leaders appreciate diversity. They like diversity because they learn from people who have a perspective that they haven't had before, they haven't seen before. That's why they're not wedded to one way of thinking or one way of leading. They're open in that regard. You know, they have an open mind and an open soul in many ways. And because they know that it's, it's fun to learn and learn from people who have different experiences than you do. And so in that way, they also probably need to be open-minded to see where they have to take a sharp turn in their original plan or their thinking because of the input they get from the people who they work with. Yes. Right? You know, uh, y- yes. You, you know, the Dalai Lama, he has, he's, he, there's been so much written about his desire to have scientists, psychologists, physicians come to Lhasa, and he wants to know what's the latest in the scientific world. And he was asked once by a journal, journalist, why do, you, why do you want them to come? And he said, because, you know, our texts are thousands of years old. But if there's anything that disproves anything in them or adds to them, I would like to change them. I mean, isn't that a wonderful view? A wonderful view. In fact, one of the journalists said, well, you know, none of these scientists can prove, uh, can prove that you come back in life, that reincarnation exists. And he, and he burst out laughing and he said, well, can you prove that it doesn't exist? <laughs> and he said, as soon as you can prove that it doesn't exist, I'll rewrite those texts. <laughs> yeah, that's, that is incredible. I think that's the ultimate, uh, the Dalai Lama is probably the ultimate uh, example of somebody who is a soulful, soulful leader. Yeah. Um, I, it also reminds me of working in um, concert with other people on various boards and things. And I think that there's this uh, group mentality where people want to agree with each other. And if you have an opinion that's different from the rest of the group, there's a, a fear of yes. asking the question or stating something that is vastly different from what everybody else seems to be saying. And I, yes. I'm guessing that a soulful leader is the kind of person who would be able to allow 
the uh, create a comfort level, create an atmosphere where people feel comfortable enough to ask the questions that may seem yes. Yes. stupid or um, yes. not applicable. Um, and are there specific tools or techniques that you work with to help people get to that point? Or do you do well, that kind of work? Well, I think, you know, what we focus on a lot, Badisha, is that when we're, like, for instance, in that instance where where the woman went to see someone and, and, and assumed that her experience was similar to someone else's, we're constantly, and I'm constantly pointing out times when people are not hearing the facts, but are generalizing or, um, and, and just, Putting, putting ideas into the other person that really they haven't heard, but they've assumed because they, it's a certain catchphrase. And, and the more people learn about their biases, and we comment that, because when you're in a room with 10 people, persons and one person says something, you, you can see how people di- react differently. For instance, I added a man. He's six foot seven, recovering alcoholic, corporate executive, and he came into the room, and one of my patients, one of my clients, was married to an alcoholic who was violent many years ago. And as soon as he came in and she said, well, you know, how come you've joined the group? And he said, well, you know, I'm a successful business person, but I've drank too much and I'm in recovery now and I want to learn how to relate differently for my family and my my children. And she said, well, have you been violent? And she said it just like that. And they got into this little thing and he said, you know, you're already at me about being violent. You don't even know me. She said, well, you're six foot seven and you're an alcoholic. Are you telling me you never hit your wife? Oh my and gosh. The truth is, the truth is he, he had never hit his wife. He had never hit his children. You know, and I meet with everyone individually until I, and I don't add them to the group experience until I know them well enough. And you see, her experience, she was generalizing. That's not empathic listening. That's, that's listening based on your past conditioning and your past experiences. So we keep going over this, these experiences. Today, those two people get along very well. And what has happened? She has learned to slow down whenever she hears the word alcoholic. She has learned not to overreact and assume that one alcoholic is like another alcoholic. Because the facts are that most alcoholics don't abuse people physically. You know, that's a myth. We know that. And she realized that she's generalizing and projecting her own experience, which is not empathic listening. Right. That's a beautiful example. I think um, we all do that. It happens to us all the time. And so it, this sounds like a process that we are continually needing to work on and continually needing to adjust as we move, yes. as we move forward. Yes. Um, yes. Are there preventive measures, if you could call it that, you know, because a lot of this is catching yourself in the process of of not being empathic. But is there a way to set yourself up to be more empathic before something comes up? Yes, I think I think when you're committed to being soulful, when you're committed to, to realizing and accepting that empathic listening is critical to success in life personally and professionally, then you keep practicing it every day. And you practice some of the, the formula that leads to empathy, which is, first of all, slowing down. Slow down. Don't react. When you're reacting quickly, most likely you're reacting from your history. Something that's triggered your reaction quickly because you're defending yourself 
or like that woman, she wanted to argue with this man about about being aggressive or physically violent because of her experience. And she learned. She learned to slow down when she's in the presence of somebody who is alcoholic or in recovery. And, of course, we all have these biases. If, if a teacher thought little of you um, and this, this person looks like the teacher that, that did that to you or reacted to you that way, you're, you're likely to have that reaction. So we keep learning from our biases. You know, I was, I was asked to give a speech at a university not long ago, last year, and I went and I was in the School of Education, and, and, and the dean said to me, he said, oh, you know, you can go sit in one of the little classrooms here where, we, where the student teachers uh, work. So, you know, we had the little desks, and I sat, and he said, would you like a cup of coffee or tea? And I said, sure, I'd love some tea. So he brought me a, a cup of tea, and I'm sitting, in it, and all of a sudden I started to get uncomfortable. Because when I, when I was young, I, I was not a great student. I felt uncomfortable in school. I used to skip school sometimes. And it was reminding me of being in that situation, and I, I was getting a little uncomfortable. So I got up, and I was walking around in the hall, and the dean said to me, well, we're not ready for you yet. You can go relax. I said, that's okay. <laughs> and I was going to get, and the talk was partly based on biases and prejudice and old conditioning. And I said, I'm going to, I'm going to can my, my pre, my pre rehearsed talk and tell you what just happened to me. See, wow. there it was. That's, it was that's my a great memory. story. I, was, I, yeah. I hate to interrupt you, but we're going to have to head for a short commercial break. I want you to finish that story though, when we come back. So don't go away. We'll be right back to talk some more about how we can all become more soulful and empathic in our role as leaders in our families, societies, and workplaces. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Frankly Speaking About Cancer is a program designed to empower survivors and their caregivers to deal with the social and emotional challenges of cancer. The show will invite physicians, researchers, nurses, social workers, patients, and caregivers to share their advice on how to live a better life with cancer. Join host Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community, Tuesday afternoons at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Can grief be good for you? Absolutely. It gets your attention, helping you evaluate your choices and relationships. Your losses define who you are. Tune in each week for Good Grief with host Cheryl Jones. Our show features those who have made incredible transformations by grieving their losses. You'll learn how to find your courage and strength. You'll discover the important things in your life and how to let go of things that are less important. Good Grief airs live Wednesdays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Health & Wellness. Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Steps to a healthier you. Voice America Health and Wellness. You are tuned into Perspectives with Dr. Vadisha Patel. If you would like to reach the show today, please call into 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. 
472-5792. You may also send an email directly to Dr. Patel at drv4kids at yahoo.com. That's Dr. V, the number four, kids at yahoo.com. Now, back to Perspectives. Welcome back to the last segment of our show today. You're listening to Perspectives. I'm your host, Dr. Vidisha Patel. Please feel free to get in touch via email to drv4kids at yahoo.com if you have any questions or comments. I would love to hear from you. I'm here with Dr. Arthur Chiara Micoli, licensed clinical psychologist and specialist in the AIE leadership method. So, um, Arthur, would you finish the story? I'm sorry I had to interrupt you um, about your experience and the triggers of being in that classroom. Well, what I was saying, Vidisha, is it was bringing back old memories, and then I was misperceiving, and anxiety is produced by by perception, by misperception. So I was talking, I was going to give a talk about how our old conditioning interferes with empathic listening or empathic relating, and here I had an example live and in color, so I began with that. And of course (laughs) it happens to all of us, because we all have histories, right? Of course. Of course, that's that's a great that's a great story because sure enough, it it does it does happen, and you you can't always predict when those that's when right. you will experience those triggers. So, um, and I also like your terminology of the reaction. I, I, it's something I work with people all the time because I think all of us we all tend to react. We tend to jump in when somebody is mid-sentence and um, because we just pick up on those first few words and we choose to react, yeah. whereas if we listen to the whole sentence, it might have a completely different meaning um, yeah. than initially. So I, I wanted to talk about something in this last segment that you discuss in your book called performance mm-hmm. addiction. Mm-hmm. Um, can you talk to me a little bit about that and explain to us what it is and sure well performance addiction is the belief that perfecting appearance and achieving status will bring love and respect it's an irrational belief system that begins in a person's family and of course it's reinforced by our cultural expectations in america for sure we have such great emphasis on appearance and status and we have downgraded character and integrity so performance addicts because they're so focused on status and image, they believe they can perfect their way into happiness. And they're always comparing and contrasting themselves with others as a result. And as a result, they kind of drive themselves crazy and all the people around them uh, because they're so perfectionistic, because they're so worried that if they make a mistake, they are a mistake, that they're always tense and and in a kind of anxious framework. And that becomes contagious. And performance addiction is insatiable because these people know how to achieve, but they don't know how to relate as well. They don't know how to calm down. They don't know how have what I call a dimmer switch. They don't know how to turn the dial down when they don't need it to be on. That's why they have trouble sleeping. They have trouble with self-care. They have trouble managing their diet. They don't tend to exercise as much because they're so obsessed with achieving more and competing more to get the love and respect they probably didn't get earlier in life. And when things don't work out well, they think they've got to put more hours in, work harder, do, be faster, be quicker. And it's just a vicious cycle, and it's kind of the nature of addiction. So it's, um, it's as if they're 
they're working harder, working more, but less efficiently um, to uh, try and achieve the same result, but they're not even achieving the same yeah. result. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it, it also comes across, I think, as insecurity. People will say, oh, that person is very insecure because they're so focused on what others think of them. Is that similar or is that, do you think that's yeah, different? Yeah. Yes, it's, it's, it's very much that, you know, because um, they're, they're, they don't get the amount of empathy and compassion that they deserve early in life. And a lot of times people don't realize this, that many high achievers are like this. You know, I've worked with high achievers for a long time. And you would assume because people have, like, for instance, if, if you're a U.S. senator, can you be insecure? If you're a celebrity, can you be insecure? If you're a star athlete or you're CEO of CFO, can you be insecure? Well, of course, we see it every day, especially right. in the political world. We see how insecure people are and how they have what I call pathological certainty. I mean, they, they, they act as if they know everything, and they're, they're citing uh, opinions and, 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 and data that doesn't even exist because they have to always be right. Because the performance addicts have an inordinate fear of being mediocre. You know, they're so afraid of not being good enough. Because they didn't get enough validation early in life, but they noticed when they hit a home run or when they get the star role in a play or when they get an A-plus in a grade, finally they get a reaction. And they say, ah, that's how to please my father. That's how to please my mother. That's how to get their attention. So achievement seems the way. And then... I'm, I'm so sorry, that man. individual who at 8 or 10 or 15 or 20 um, only saw the reaction or the response from the achievement, when they get to be 50 and 60 or whatever, older age, um, how do you unravel that addictive cycle? Well, I think, you know, these are some of the people that come into my leadership and communication groups because what happens is it kind of works for them for a while, but usually their personal relationships start to fall apart and they're not happy and they're not healthy. And it's usually the wife or the husband that brings them in or says, you know, you need to do something because it's just not working. As I said before, they know how to achieve, but they don't know how to love because what a performance addicts do in their marriages. They compare and contrast themselves to, to other people, but they do the same thing with their spouses. Why can't you be like Sally Jones? Why can't you dress like uh, Mr. So-and-so? Why haven't, oh, you know, so-and-so said that he made $300,000 last year. Why aren't we like that? They're all, they do that to their kids and their spouses, and they drive people crazy because perfectionism is, is a myth. You know, nobody can perfect themselves. You know, someone once said there's only two choices in life. You can either be perfect or be human. And so far, I haven't seen anyone who's ever attained the perfection level. Right. right. So so that actually, I have a question about that then. When you work with performance addicts, do you find it's more successful to work with them in group as opposed to individually? Because that way, it can be modeled for them how to um, relate to others. Yes, Vidisha, I find the most effective method is a combination of individual and group therapy, but eventually they're transitioned to group therapy altogether. Why is it important? Because in my groups, it's the same 10 people every week. They don't communicate outside of the group time. Um, that's a rule, and so everything stays in the group. And what happens is, 
you know, if nine people think you're temperamental, it's kind of hard to deny it. Right. You know, if one person says you're temperamental, but if nine people who come to know you very, very well over six months all say the same thing, it's kind of hard to walk out and say, I'm right and they're all wrong. So, yes, it is effect. Also, they see that as people learn more and they see people learning how to relate with more empathy and more compassion, they see that they're more well-liked. The people in group don't come in. They don't get to talk about how much money they make or how big their house is. It's a first-name basis, and then who gets the most status in group? It's not the person who's the most attractive, and it's not even the person who has the most uh, impressive resume. It's the person who knows how to listen. It's the person who knows how to be empathic. It's the person who knows how to give tactful, accurate feedback and who has learned about their own biases and seems to be able to perceive so much more accurately as time goes on. Those are the people who elevate in terms of self-worth, not only in themselves, but the, the group members see them as the most worthy. That's great. That's why I, I think groups are, are wonderful when they work well, because they really, they, I think they highlight the successes so much more, um, and they mm-hmm. help they help everyone, whether it's the individual who's improving and overcoming challenges or the others watching. So I think mm-hmm. um, you have a, a quote in your book. It says, relate with love and you'll be happy and more productive. Relate with tension and stress and you will be unhappy and less productive. Um, I think this is what we've we've been talking about, um, mm-hmm. that these are cycles that uh, reinforce themselves Um and both positively and negatively. Um, and I guess I'm, I'm curious how we can help families and parents create that kind of environment in their, within their homes or, within the, or for the teachers within the schools. Um, because I think the younger we can start teaching people about this, um, yes. The better it will be for our society, because our society seems to have gone down a different road in that other cycle and is reinforcing yes. itself in that direction. Yes, and and that I know that's your concern, and it's my grave concern. That's why I wrote this book. I think if you commit to making empathy and AIE leadership or AIE interacting with authenticity, integrity, and empathy, if you commit to making it a central part of your life, if you be the change then you cause a ripple effect in your homes and in your organizations. And it's not a theoretical change. It's an active process. You have to put empathy and AI leadership into action. If you do so, you know, you become part of making a better world and a better organization. And it is absolutely contagious. People like to be around people who relate this way, whether you're in business, whether it's in your family, whether it's with your close friends. People like to be around people who relate this way, and they will begin to relate that way themselves. It is contagious. I've seen it so many times in families and in organizations. So can you, we have just a couple of minutes left. Can you um, talk about AIE and how you lay it out in your book for, for people who haven't read the book yet? Well, I, what I'm what I'm focusing on in the book is that Authenticity, integrity, and empathy causes brain change in ourselves and in others, and it creates that spirited atmosphere that naturally allows for productivity, creativity, and in the end, 
we know from many studies it produces financial and market results. It makes, it makes profits rise. Because when people are happy, when we, when we know how to change brain chemistry to make ourselves and others happy, it's contagious. And when you're happy, you are more creative. When you're tense, you're less creative. Less creative, less production, less profit, less, 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 less fulfillment in what you're doing. When you're relating with empathy and giving and receiving empathy, you're changing your brain chemistry in a way that opens you up to be your best self. You know, people often think that when people are coming in to see someone like you and I, Badisha, that we're going to point out what's wrong with them. And this approach really doesn't focus on what's wrong with people. It teases out what's always been right with them. It teases out their potential that's been lying dormant. I think the point that you made earlier in our discussion. Yes, and that's. I'm so glad you brought that up because I had that was something that I loved immediately about what you were writing about, which was this idea of chipping away to get at what is right um, because you're right people do come in saying I have this problem you know help me fix it and mm-hmm. um, it, that's not the, the fixing in a sense is superficial and it's really yeah. helping the person emerge as to their true self and helping them discover their true self is helping them you know create happiness in their lives um, mm-hmm. exactly and, so can you share with um, everyone, I know you have a website, and if you have um, anything you'd like to share in terms of some of the groups that you, are, that you have in the Boston area, we have like a minute left if you would like to share that. Well, my website is balanceyoursuccess.com. The Soulful Leader can be ordered from the website, balanceyoursuccess.com, or it's on Amazon and Barnes & Noble. Um, and in my website, you can see other articles, blogs that I've written, my other books. Um, and I think in the book, The Soul for Leader, there's many examples of people who you probably wouldn't think initially would be able to develop this ability. But I, there are quizzes in the book and action items that you can participate in and implement in your life that I think you know everyone has this capacity within them. It's a question of practicing and being dedicated to the process. Yes, so thank you so much for joining me today, Dr. Kara Mikoli. Um, thank you for writing this book, The Soulful Leader. I think it is important for all of us to read and understand and start working on right away if we haven't been doing it. Um, it's pertinent not just to the corporate world, but it's pertinent to any interaction that we have, any and all relationships in life. So thank you so much for joining us today on Perspectives. This is Dr. Vidisha Patel, your host. I look forward to being back with you next week for another edition. Feel free to email me at drvforkids at yahoo.com with questions, comments, and you have a wonderful week. Until next time. Thank you for listening to our program this week. Another edition of Perspectives with Dr. Vidisha Patel can be heard next Wednesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Until we talk again, have a lovely week.